Hopefully all of you are in Romans chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be working our way through verses 17 to 29. And before I read that, let's just stop for a moment and pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Romans that you, through your spirit, inspired Paul to write. We pray that your word would be blessed and go forth powerfully. We, we trust in your promise that when your word goes out, the truth of scripture, the truth of your gospel goes out, that it does not return to you empty. And so we, we pray that there would be much fruit that comes from our study through Romans chapter 2 this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. If you do not have your scriptures with you or in front of you, it is going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read verses 17 to 29. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor in circumcision outwardly and physical. But one is a Jew, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Before we jump into the text together, I want to walk through a biblical parable. It's uh, found in Luke 15. May be familiar for some of you, may not be. Uh, It's the the story of two brothers, the story of two sons, commonly referred to as the story of the prodigal son. And I want to walk through this because I think it's going to be helpful for us in understanding what Paul's trying to convey here, specifically Romans 1 and Romans 2 and into Romans 3. And I think it'll help us to be able to pull out exactly what Paul is walking through in these passages. So the story goes something like this. I'm going to paraphrase much of it. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son comes to him one day and says to him, I want what's mine. I want my portion of the inheritance. I don't want to wait until you pass away. I don't want to wait until you're gone. I don't want to wait until you're older. I want what's mine now. The father relents and he gives his younger son his portion of the inheritance. And the younger son takes his newfound wealth and he wastes it on prostitutes. He wastes it on what the NIV calls wild living. The son then finds himself, after having squandered all of his wealth, working as a as a pig farmer, for a pig farmer, feeding pigs. And it's at that moment as he's feeding pigs and he looks at the way that his life has turned out and he thinks, I'm so hungry, I want what the pigs are eating. He determines then and there that he's going to go back to his home. He's going to go back to his father. And he's going to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just make me a servant in your house. Because servants in your house actually get to eat. 
So he goes home and his father, seeing him coming towards the house, actually runs to him. Runs to him and he, he pray, places his arms around him in an embrace. He kisses him. The son says to him, just make me a servant. I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father just ignores his words, puts a ring on his finger. And he says, he, he celebrates to him and, and, and he celebrates why. He says there, because his son who was once dead is now alive. His son who was once lost is now found. So everyone is celebrating except for one person the older brother. The older brother sees what's happening and he's told that his, his prodigal brother has come home and he is upset. So he waits outside the party and his, his father comes out to him and he says, what are you upset for? Come in, join us in the celebration. And the older brother says, I have been with you forever. I have done everything that I'm supposed to do. I have followed all of your commands exactly as I was supposed to follow them, and you've never thrown a celebration like this for me. The end of the story is that the father tells him, it's worthwhile that we're celebrating because your brother who was once dead is now alive. Your brother who was once lost is now found. And you may be thinking, why are you walking us through the prodigal son story when we're talking about Romans chapter 2. And as I, I mentioned earlier, I think what we'll see from the story of the two sons, the story of these two brothers, is that what Paul is getting at in chapters 1 and chapter 2 align very closely, in fact, identically, to Jesus' message in that parable. And that is this. Whether you are like the younger brother, who, who takes what the father gives and squanders it and wastes it on the temporary pleasures of sin, or you are like the older brother who does all the right things, who follows all of the rules and never steps out of line, whether you're the younger or the older, if your pursuit in life is what the father gives and not the father himself, you're in trouble when judgment comes. Because both the younger type of people who run away and the older type of people who do the right thing all stand guilty under the wrath of God. And that's what Paul's getting at in chapters 1 and 2. You see clearly in chapter 1, you see the younger prodigal son who Paul says are the, the ungodly who suppress the truth of God and they would rather pursue idols than worship the true and living God. They find their pleasure and their joy the things that God should be giving them, they actually find it in temporary sexual pleasures and other sins, exchanging God's glory for the worship of other things. And so the end of chapter one says they will be without excuse when God judges the secrets of men. We come to chapter two then, and in chapter two we see the older brother, the faithful one who seeks to gain joy, pleasure, and immortality by keeping all the rules, obeying the law, Yet, what Paul explains is that they cannot keep this perfectly, and so they are, just as the younger brother, guilty. And so just as the younger brother, when judgment comes, God will judge the secrets of men, and they will be exposed. So it's with this backdrop that we jump into Romans chapter 2, verses 17. And I think it's important for us to understand that, that context of things, of what Paul's getting at. And so in verse 17, he's going to call out a specific group of people, and he's been hinting at it through chapter 2 here. 
when he talks about the law, but he's going to actually call it out in chapter 2, verse 17. And he says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you, oh, sorry, wrong verse. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So he's specifically going to call out the Jewish people. And I, I feel it's important to say just as a preference, Paul doesn't hate the Jews. Paul is a Jew himself. In a few chapters, chapter 9, he's actually going to make a statement that is somewhat debated, but makes the statement that he would rather be accursed from Christ if it meant the Jews could be saved. He has a passionate love for the Jewish people. He, he desires the Jewish people to be saved. So he doesn't hate the Jews. There has been throughout history historical hatred of the Jewish people. We've even seen it in the city of Pittsburgh just less than three years ago, less than three miles from here. A man walked into a Jewish synagogue and killed 11 people. Why? Because they were Jewish people. That was the only reason. So Paul doesn't hate the Jews. We, we can't look at what Paul's going to say here as justification for hatred of Jewish people. It's not Paul's point. Paul has a deep concern and a love for the Jewish people, and he desires them to be saved. So his rebuke of them is going to get very specific. It's going to be very targeted. He's going to come across as... as really just not liking what they're all about. And it's because he has a concern and a love for them. He's going to be harsh because he desires them to be saved. Paul's already explained in chapters 2, 1 through 16 that both those with the law and those without the law will face judgment. And God is not partial to certain people. It says that in verse 11. There's no partiality in God. So he's not going to be easier on some because they have the law and less easier on others because they don't have the law. Ultimately, all will face judgment for what they've done. So God's standard of judgment that he lays out in those first 16 verses that you, if you want to be righteous before God, you have to have obtained perfection, perfect adherence to the law of God. That's his standard. And so because people can't do that, there's a problem. People will be judged. And so there is an objection that's going to come up for Paul that he's going to answer here. Because you have Jewish people listening to this. You have other, other people listening to this that would, that would come up with objections to Paul's logic and Paul's reasoning in the first 16 verses. And he's going to address that in verses 17 to 29. Because while, while some Jews might take exception to the fact that Paul is saying that judgment is impartial, they, they wouldn't even deny the fact that they are sinful people. Jews would admit that. The Jews would say that they're sinful. The objection would be that while Jews are sinful people, there are certain advantages they have. There are certain things they have, namely the law we read about in verse 17 and circumcision, verse 25. So that the, the Jewish objection would be, yes, we're sinners, but we have this advantage of the law and circumcision, we have this position as being the peoples of God that when judgment comes, it's going to be a lot easier for us. In fact, we may not even go through judgment because we are the people of God. So Paul's going to challenge this idea that simply by being part of this covenant that God has made with Israel, that simply by being part of that does not make one righteous when they stand before God. Rather, what we'll see and what we see consistently through the book of Romans and the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, is that it is faith alone 
in Jesus Christ that will have someone stand before God and be declared righteous. That's it. It's faith alone. Paul's already mentioned this in chapter 1, and he'll mention it in chapter 3. In verse 117, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Paul says it in 321, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Those are the bookend verses to all of his discussion about sin. The point of what Paul's trying to make through all of this discussion is to say, faith alone is what saves you. We've got a problem, it's sin, and the remedy for that problem is faith. It's faith alone that saves us, and so we need saving because all of us, whether we are younger brother, older brother, Gentile or Jew, those with the law, those without the law, all of us need to be saved because all of us have that problem of sin. We're going to get back to that in verse 23, and we'll, we'll hit on sin a bit more heavier there. But in verses 17 to 21, what Paul's actually doing is he's paraphrasing what were common statements, common themes that were said about Jewish people at the time. You would, if you read Jewish writers in the first century writing around the same time Paul did, you would find similar things that they're saying to what he's saying here. And, and look at what Paul, how he describes the Jewish people. And he, he really like lays it on thick. Like if you're really trying to like butter somebody up, you're going to say these things to, some, to a Jewish person. Look at what he says. He says, you call yourself a Jew. Probably a better translation of that is you bear the name Jew. The, the idea is there that this is a, a label or some type of a marker that gives them a valued status as God's people. You call yourself a Jew. You place yourself in this community of value. He says, the Jews, you rely on the law and you boast in God. So they, they value God and his written law. The, the idea is that there's a special relationship that the Jewish people have with God. A faithful Jew would agree when Psalm 119 says, oh, how I love your law. The Jewish people would say that. We love your law. Not only that, but the law instructs and it guides the Jewish people on how to live. He says, you, you know the will of God. And he uses this phrase, you approve what is excellent. What he means there is that you're able to determine what's really important. It reminds us of Matthew 23 when Jesus says, that there are weightier matters of the law. The, the Jewish people, because of their understanding, because of all of the instruction they have, are able to discern what's important, what's not important. And in addition to being able to guide themselves and be a law to themselves, Paul goes further and says, you're able to instruct others. You're able to instruct the foolish. You're able to instruct those, even the immature, the children. They would be following along the idea, again, of Psalm 119, that the, the law, the word, is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. So to recap in these verses, what Paul's saying in verses 17 to 20 is that the Jews have this knowledge of God. They have an instruction of what's right and wrong, and they have access to this truth. So if you're a Jewish person, you, you feel like you're this total package. You've got a special relationship with God. You are the possessors of the truth. You are part of the chosen covenant people of God. And you've been given this mission to share this truth with all the Gentiles, to share this truth with people who don't know. So the objection to Paul is, you're saying that Jews don't have this advantage when facing judgment, and yet how can you say this when they have the law? When they are in this position of status as part of the people of God, 
But you notice a couple of Paul's words. He uses the same word twice, once in verse 17 and once in verse 19. It's a small word. It's a conditional word. The word is if. What we know about conditional statements is that when you see the word if, you're expecting something after it, a then statement. So if this is true, then this must be true. That's the logic of an if-then statement. And so Paul does that, but he, he uses the then statement to actually ask four rhetorical questions. And he does that in verses 21 and 22. And he uses these questions. He says, you, you people who say one thing and do another, you teach others, but you don't teach yourselves. You tell others not to steal, but you steal. You tell others not to commit adultery, but you do. You tell others not to commit idolatry, but you do. You people who do these things, you say one thing and you do the opposite. You're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what Paul's telling them. You're a bunch of hypocrites. To say one thing and do the other, you're hypocrites. Hypocrisy is no trivial thing. Um, Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 24 of a master who leaves his home. And he actually, in, in this story, compares two servants and he, he says there's a servant who will do good, who will do right, who will care for the people while the master's gone. And then there's an evil servant who will beat the people and he will treat them poorly and he will oppress them. And this is what he actually says when he describes what will happen to the wicked servant. Matthew chapter 24, verses 50 and 51. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I bring that up to mainly focus on that one word, hypocrites. He could have put anything there. He could have put the sexually immoral. He could have put the rapist. He could have put the liars. He could have put the murderers. He could have put all the different adjectives. What does he use? He uses one word, hypocrites. Hypocrisy is not a small thing. It's not a trivial thing. What, what Jesus is saying is that that evil servant who does all those evil things... He, along with all the hypocrites, will face final judgment and it's not going to be pretty. A weeping and a gnashing of teeth. So the person who says all the right stuff, maybe even tells other people to do all of the right stuff and then does the opposite, is facing the same exact judgment as the homosexual, as the murderer, as the adulterer, as the thief, as the rapist, and name any other sin you could possibly think of. Name any other sin that Paul mentions in chapter 1. The person who is a hypocrite will be judged the same exact way and face the same exact punishment. Now, Paul's objectors here would probably say, well, I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't, I haven't worshipped other idols. I've been a good, faithful Jew. And so what we, we need to understand is that Paul's not giving this exhaustive list. He's, he's using these as examples to say, you can't keep this law. You'll never keep this law. And just because you, you talk a good game, if you don't live it perfectly, you are a hypocrite and you will be judged. And before our minds start to go, because it's easy to do, it's so easy to do. Before our minds start to go to think of the person who is the hypocrite in our life, the one who's the most hypocritical that we know. I think it's wise to go back to what Justin said a couple of weeks ago. When you point your finger at one person, you've got three pointing back at you. So let's point the finger at ourselves. 
How have we been? Are there areas of our lives where we have been hypocritical? Areas where we, we say one thing and yet we do the opposite. If we evaluate our lives, where are those instances where that happens? Let's get a, a little closer to home and real for a second. ECC Membership Covenant. If you're a member of the church, you signed this statement. You signed agreeing to this. You said you would do this. It says, I will seek to live a life of self-sacrificial love and unity with people who are not like me culturally, economically, ethnically, or generationally. For members of the church, I signed this myself. Have we been gossiping about people in the church? Do we talk about people behind their backs when we don't when we disagree with them, we don't like something they've done or said? Are we angry with someone in the church and so we've been talking with our friends and family about how they make us angry and so rather than talking to them, we're letting bitterness creep in and destroy that relationship? Well, this person posted this thing on Facebook that offended me. This, this elder, probably what I'm saying right now, said something that got on my nerves and I didn't like what he said. So even though you signed a statement saying you're going to live at unity and peace with people, you're talking about them behind their backs. You're going to your friends and family. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy that should be repented of. And so the, the reaction to that, the response to that, if, if that's us and that's our situation where we've been doing that, is to say, God, I'm sorry. Sorry for the way that I lived. And then go and talk to that person that we've been struggling to talk to for so long. And actually live out what that says. To live a life of self-sacrificial love and unity with people. Are we doing that? Because the person who is the unrepentant hypocrite will ultimately find their place in judgment. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. You know, hypocrisy is not a mark of Christianity, but Christians are oftentimes accused of it, aren't we? Especially from those outside of the Christian world. It's, it's common to hear people say, well, I can't believe that this Christian stuff is true because look at all the hypocrites in the church. And that is, that is true. That's a, that's a valid argument for people outside the church. You, you see people who say they are going to live one way and yet they live the opposite. Who say they love Jesus and yet really have nothing to do with Jesus in most of their life. I think a response to that when, when someone brings that up as an objection to the gospel, at least how I think through it is, yeah, you're right. I am a hypocrite. I am a sinful person. I do wrong things. I don't always live the way that I should. But here's the difference. I understand that about myself. I see my sin and I confess my sin to a holy God who sent Jesus Christ to free me from my sin. So while I don't live a perfect life, I, I can rely on the one who did live a perfect life so that I can find myself in a relationship with God. So yeah, the church is full of people who do wrong things. That's right. That's fair. That's, that's a fair objection to the gospel. But at the end of the day, what brings us into heaven, what brings us into relationship with God is not how we live and not whether or not I live perfectly, 
but it's because I rest on the fact that Jesus lived perfectly in my place. There is some truth, as I mentioned, to what that antagonist would say, though. There's hypocrisy among Christians. But I think that's really Paul's point for the Jews. Especially when you look at verse, verse 18 when he says, you're instructed by the law. The Jews were people of the book. They had the law. They, they had the Old Testament. They studied the Old Testament thoroughly. Probably better than most of us do our own Bibles today. And Christians, just like Jews, are people of the Bible. And so we seek to follow the law of Christ as it's written on our hearts, but it leaves us susceptible to be hypocrites. We can fall into the same trap that the Jews do because we think we have this truth. We know we have this truth, and so we operate as though we are above others and we we live in a certain way that isn't, verse 21, that isn't teaching ourselves that truth. We know the truth, but are we keeping ourselves in check with that truth? A silly example. A couple weeks ago, Elizabeth went to bed with something called a puff cuff in her hair. You have to ask her what that is. Because um, it's something that's supposed to make your hair look nicer. I've never used one. Obvious reasons why. Um, I'll never probably use one, would be my guess. But the next morning after Elizabeth woke up, she... She had all these tangles in her hair because I guess between the puff cuff and sleep and whatever else is going on at night, it just results in tangles in the hair that need to be brushed out, sometimes painfully brushed out from what I hear. So Elizabeth told me as she's going through that, she said, never let me sleep with a puff cuff in my hair again. So I have to remind her if she ever wears one again, like don't sleep with that again. It's a silly example but if, if Elizabeth were to just go back and do the same thing again, she's going to end up with tangled hair again. She knows what is right. She knows what's true now. Don't sleep with this thing in your hair. And so she needs to teach herself to not do that and have a better result when she wakes up in the morning and gets ready for the day. Again, silly example, but in the same way as we think of our perspective in our Christian lives, We know what's true. We know what's right. And if we're not training ourselves with it, we're going to get tangled up in sin, specifically sins like hypocrisy, where we're saying one thing and we're doing the opposite. And ultimately, if we aren't training ourselves, there is a danger to hypocrisy. The first danger he actually mentions in verse 23. says, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So the first danger of the hypocrite, and I would say the entire world, is that God is dishonored. I include the entire world because if we looked at chapter 1, verse 21, talking about the Gentiles, he says, for all they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And I think this really gets us to the central point of this entire section. I would say the central point of verses, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20 And that is this, what's at stake when there is sin, when there is evil present in our lives is the honor, or we could say the glory of God. That's what's at stake, among other things that flesh out of that. So it begs us to answer the question, then, what is evil and what is sin? And I think John Piper helps us here. He answers these questions in a way that I think is right. He says, evil is the feeling thinking and acting that treats God as less than infinitely valuable 
and satisfying. And the essence of sin is not treating the glory of God for what it really is. The most valuable reality and the most satisfying treasure in the universe. There is, there is a God-centeredness to sin and righteousness. There's a God-centeredness to sin and righteousness that we miss too often because we place ourselves at the center of sin and righteousness too much. What I mean by that is when we place ourselves at the center of sin, when something wrong happens, when, something, when someone sins, our instinct, our nature, because we are sinful people, is to place ourselves at the center of that and say, it's sinful because something was done to me that was wrong. Secondary is, God was dishonored. But primary is, I was dishonored. So this is why when something hurtful is said to us or done to us, our immediate instinct and our response is to go put that person who did that thing in their place. That's what we want to do. We, we want to say the thing that will hurt them the most, that will get back at them for the hurt that they've done to us because they've dishonored us. It would feel so good to just cut them down. Or if you're the violent type, it would feel so good to just punch them. So good to just put them in their place. But that reaction comes from a mindset that's dominated by a human-centeredness of sin. Now, I, I don't want to get this misconstrued. There is a personal reality to sin that leaves consequences and impacts in people's lives. It's right when someone insults you and hurts you and sins against you to actually go to that person and say, what you've done is wrong, and you have wronged me. That's appropriate. That's right. Jesus actually says that. He says to do that, that if someone has offended you, you go to him, you go to them, and you say, you've offended me. But I think what is also right, and I think Jesus would agree with this, is that the offense against us is primarily an offense against God. First and foremost, it's an offense against God. So when we go to that person who has offended us and we confront that person, it's not a confrontation to restore our glory. It's a confrontation to explain to them how what they've done in sinning against us has actually dishonored God. And so our, our desire is a restoration of the value of God's glory, not a restoration of self-glory. That's what we do when we confront sin. We don't confront someone in their sin because we're seeking vengeance or self-satisfaction or personal rights. We talk to someone because our concern is that their sin against us is a sin against God. And a sin against God dishonors God and ultimately places someone in the crosshairs of judgment, and we do not desire that. God's glory is most valued when his people are satisfied in him and living at peace with one another. And it's so rare for us to, to talk with someone about how they've offended us, how they've wronged us, and tell them that, yes, their sin has hurt us, yes, their sin has impacted us, but more importantly and of greater concern is that their sin has dishonored God. That is so rare to see in our interactions together. Because what is primary of importance when it comes to sin is that God and his glory are dishonored. Not that, not that we have been insulted. 
in order to be prepared to understand, believe, and live the gospel, we have to have a proper understanding of the God-centeredness of sin. We have to have a proper understanding of God-centeredness of righteousness. And I keep bringing up righteousness because while this section is talking about sin, I, I think it's appropriate to bring up this discussion. And, and so we'll recall the story from the two sons. We'll recall the story of the two sons, and, and while we're thinking about that, keep in mind what is this evil and sin dynamic that we've been talking about too. When we think of the two brothers, you look at the younger brother and you can see, obviously, yes, he has dishonored God. He dishonored the father. He, he took what the father gave him, all this wealth, and wasted it on whores. That was, that was what he did. He wasted all of his wealth on nothing. We can easily see how the younger brother has dishonored the father, but the older brother also dishonors the father. How? Because his righteous pursuits aren't a pursuit of the father. They're a pursuit of what the father gives. The older brother dishonors the father because in his pursuits in life, they are not driven out of a love and an affection and an appreciation and a satisfaction in the father. Rather, he is just trying to get what the father has. And that places, again, the human at the center of righteousness. A human-centered righteousness lives the right way and does the right thing, thinking that it will result in the lives that we've always wanted. Thinking that if we do the right stuff, we'll get the good stuff in return. That we'll get the things we always wanted and God will be happy with us. And when we live that way, we live like grace doesn't exist. We live like grace wasn't enough and we live like the cross wasn't enough. And so we dishonor God either by what we do in our sinful actions or why we do what we do with our sinful motives. Either way, we're dishonoring God. And both types of people, both the younger and the older, need to repent. The response to a recognition of that in our lives is repentance and faith in the gospel. Over and over and over and over and over again. Not that we're saved over and over again, but we run back to the gospel in repentance over and over and over again. That we can come to the gospel and say, yes, my sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. The only remedy for our sin is that Jesus is Jesus because Jesus came and he died. And in doing so, he vindicated the glory of God that we've dishonored. He has rescued all of us who dishonor that glory and he's rescued us from his wrath so that now we who are in Jesus Christ can properly honor and give glory to the Father that he deserves. We live righteously not to earn God's favor. We live righteously to showcase his worth and his glory. So the first danger of the hypocritical person is that they dishonor God's glory and the second danger Paul actually gives us, and he quotes, verse 24, in verse 24, he quotes Isaiah 52. He says that the hypocrite actually ruins God's reputation. Paul's saying here that the Jew, by saying one thing and doing the other, they blaspheme and discredit God to non-Jews. The Jews were given this responsibility to share the truth of God with the Gentiles, and ultimately, as we've already discussed, they, they treated God as though his glory was less than the infinite value that he is. Looking at the clock, I probably don't have time to do this, but I'm doing it anyway. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Um, This chapter of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it, is the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, actually is the third of the Ten Commandments. And it says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Typically, the way we've been taught, the way we, we think of this verse is that we don't say things like, oh my God. We don't take God's name or Jesus' name and, and, and put it into some type of an oath and we discuss it in a way that is equivalent to cursing. I believe, and I don't have time to get into why I believe this, maybe at a future date I will, I believe this verse and this commandment is not just talking about the things that come out of our mouths, but the idea of this verse is actually that we you shall not bear the name of God in vain. You shall not take the name of God in vain in the sense of the Jews were representatives of God to the world. And so as representatives of God to the world, they needed to uphold and live at a certain standard to showcase the glory and the worth of God. And by failing to do that, they failed this commandment. This command is less about what words come out of our mouths and more about how the people of God live, how they live as representatives of his on the earth. And again, I don't have time to get into why I believe that. Um, If you're interested and you don't feel like talking to me, there's a really good book, um, Bearing God's Name by Carmen Imes. She's an Old Testament scholar who goes through this whole and unpacks all of this. Really easy read, really good read. You would enjoy it. Um, Or you can come talk to me sometime if you're interested. So one of the Ten Commandments, the Jews were to represent God and represent him well. And they didn't do it. They failed. It's easy for us to make this connection back to ourselves. Very easy to do. Because how often do we fail at representing Jesus? How often do we dishonor God and we actually ruin his reputation to non-believers? It may come through overt sins. People who are outside, family, friends, coworkers, others, may see our sin and say, how can he be a Christian? But I wonder if, as well, people see our arrogance and our pride, where we place ourselves above other people who don't know the truth, and they think, that, that Christian stuff, that's trash. You know why? Because I know a guy who's a Christian, he's more arrogant than anyone I know. Our coworkers, our friends, and our families know we're Christians, and so when we walk around thinking we're better than everyone else, it just gives off a vibe that is not Christ-like. And so they turn around and they say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Because you say one thing, you say you love this Jesus who came and humbled himself down to the level of a human, and yet you walk around prideful and arrogant and unrepentant of that. So the message of Paul in 17 through 24 is that we're all guilty. Whether we're guilty because we have this outward sin or we're guilty because of our hypocrisy that we say one thing and we do the other, we're guilty. And in our sin, we have dishonored God and his glory. I'm going to have to fly through 25 to 29, but that's okay because I'm preaching next week and I'm going to talk about some of this next week too. So we get to cover a lot of it. Paul's still talking about the Jews in 25 to 29. He brings up the idea of circumcision. We already talked earlier. There there were two objections to Paul. One was they have this law 
And in this law, they are given this special position, and then circumcision is a sign of that position. So that those who have this circumcision, this physical sign of the covenant, they are the chosen people of God. And so a symbol that carried value for the Jewish person would have been something that brought cultural and ethnic pride to them. They loved the fact that they had this identity marker among the Jewish people. And Paul, what he does is he systematically breaks down that the circumcision that you so value, it has no value unless you can have perfect obedience to the law. If you fail to have perfect obedience to the law, it's like you're an uncircumcised person. You are not part of the people of God. So Paul's pushing against this Jewish understanding of what it means to be God's chosen people. So being part of the people of God is no longer marked by just physical circumcision. Instead, what he says is that those who are physically circumcised but break the law are ultimately condemned. And those who adhere to the law, those who do what's right, even if they are by nature uncircumcised, are part of the people of God. Paul's attacking this typical Jewish perspective, and he's really addressing this question. Who is, a, who is a true Jew? Who is the true Jew? Is it those who are physically circumcised, but they are hypocrites? Or is it those who are not physically circumcised, but they adhere and keep to the law? Paul answers that in verse 29, at the end of the chapter. He says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. I think what Paul does is he brings into view a verse, Ezekiel 36, 27, it's part of the new covenant, that says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. In Ezekiel 36, God, again, giving the new covenant and in the new covenant, he says actually in verse 26, the verse right before this, he says that he will remove their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh and he will write their law, his law on their hearts. He places a new spirit within us. So what Paul's saying is that this relationship between man and God is no longer this this physical, external aspect of circumcision. Instead, being part of the people of God involves living in the spirit, loving the Lord God with your heart and obeying him out of a heart of love and affection. And in living this way, we no longer seek approval from men, but we rest in the approval from God. Not based on our own works because we can't perfectly keep the law, but based on the works of the one Jesus who did actively keep the law and shed his blood for our sake. We've covered a lot. I have two minutes and I'll wrap it up in two minutes. There may be things that we need to reflect on personally tonight. There may be things you look back to and say, I've been a hypocrite in that area. There are sins that we need to confess to God and maybe even sins that we need to confess to our families, maybe sins we need to confess to our friends, our GCCs. We need to ask forgiveness. Maybe we need to have hard conversations with people. Maybe there's people we've grown angry and bitter with and we need to go talk with them. Maybe we need to confess our sins to God for the first time. Maybe you never have. And you need to confess your sins to him and And repent of that sin and for the first time believe the gospel. If if any of that resonates with you and you need to talk with someone, talk with me, talk with Chris, talk with Eddie, find somebody to talk to afterwards and we will direct you to the gospel and direct you to scripture.
But I'll leave us with this to close up. We are hypocrites. All of us. We are hypocrites. We have all dishonored God. We have stomped all over his grace. When we try to work our way to God's approval, we've run from him. We've gotten into wicked sins. We don't care about his glory. We value our own glory above his. We break his law every day. And we ruin his reputation often. Those things are true. Sad reality, but it's true. And we deserve, because of those things, to be judged harshly. We deserve to be judged based on those things, based on our sin, and have God's wrath poured out on us. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know this gospel, you don't believe this gospel, that's what's waiting for you. God's going to judge you on all of those things. The hypocrisy, the sin, the lies, the dishonoring of him. However, there's always a but. But for those of us who are in Christ, when we have been hypocrites, Jesus has been nothing but genuine and faithful and true. When we have dishonored God, Jesus has only honored him. When we have stomped and trampled on his grace, Jesus has given his life to lavish us with his grace. Where we have sinned and will continue to sin, Jesus has forgiven that sin, past, present, and future. Where we have cared about our glory above God's glory, Jesus has repaired what we have ruined. Where we have broken the law, Jesus, the true Israel, has fulfilled the law, doing what the Jews could never do. Where we ruin God's reputation, Jesus has only and always and will forever represent God faithfully. So, for Christians, we've got a long way to go. Lots of things to fix. But we never fear the judgment. Because Jesus, the faithful one, the obedient Savior, took God's wrath in our place. And it's because of that that we celebrate communion. There's no prescribed method for how to do it in Scripture. We do it every week here. Why do we do it every week? We do it because every week we want to remember and be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins on the cross. We want to be reminded of the common unity we have in the gospel, and we want to be reminded of the future hope we have that one day we will share this meal with Jesus when he returns. So I invite you, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, to join with us. If you are, for the first time, realizing your sin and you would say, I have trusted in Jesus this evening, I invite you to join us in communion for the first time. As a prayer to close us, I want to read Romans 15, 5 through 6. It says, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.